0: Welcome to Restorative Justice and Crime Control. In the studio with me is Sir Charles Pollard, former Chief Constable of the Thames Valley Police Force and from the Centre for Criminological Research in Oxford, Roderick Hill. Roderick, a lot of people would think, hold on, we've got the crime statistics, we've got the crime survey, what can you do through your research that the Home Office can't do with its reporting on statistics?
1: Well, Basically look at the issues in a lot closer fashion by looking at uh, individual cases and exploring and interviewing people who are subject to criminal justice policy.
0: And how independent are you? I mean, you have to be funded by somebody, presumably often the Home Office.
1: Yes, but they fund us on the understanding that what we come up with is an independent uh, thoughts on the subject and therefore not in any way responsible to them.
0: Now, Sir Charles, why were you interested in restorative uh, justice? You've had a long and distinguished career ending up as a chief constable in Thames Valley. So what was it about this idea that appealed to you? Well, within the
2: Thames Valley Police, we tried to create an innovative problem-solving culture. And through that, what came out was a lot of frustration about the workings of the mainline criminal justice system. And so with police officers, we decided to try and develop something which is better. And course, uh, just tell what the frustrations were. Well, every time you formally arrest someone to put them through the court process, you have got two things. You've got a huge bureaucracy and a massive amount of time wasting a huge cost. F- and for minor offences, this is silly. And secondly, it is very adversarial. And uh, there's really quite a lot of cynicism about that. And, of course, victims of crime are not involved at all. They are just givers of evidence. They have no place or no lockers in the system. Mm. So the principle we followed is this, that if you have a system where you don't even involve the people who have been affected by crime, you don't involve them in its solution, you've got no chance. If you do involve people in its solution, then suddenly Mm. you see really exciting things happening. So when did you hear about this New Zealand project? After we ourselves had already developed in the Milton Keynes Retail Theft Initiative, we'd already started doing some work which had quite a big restorative element in it. Mm. Found everything we did with that just seemed to work extraordinarily well for much less cost, much more job satisfaction for police officers and most important of all, victims and crime and offenders getting a much more sensible approach, we felt. Having developed that and then trying to expand it at Aylesbury where we developed uh, restorative conferencing or tried to, that's when we linked up with New Zealanders and the
0: Australians who were working in the same area. Well, we'll be hearing about the New Zealand experience in just a moment but let's just check our definitions here. Roderick Hill, if you had to define restorative justice, how would you? I would try and define it in fairly simple terms, I think. And that is that
1: restorative justice, when addressing crime, it takes its focus the harm that has been done by the crime. So it looks at the harm that's been done by an offence and it seeks to address repairing that harm. And the other sort of part of the definition would be that people who are involved, who have been affected by that crime, come together to try and resolve it and... In the case of most crimes, that would be the victim, the offender, and their communities of care, so their supporters. For the offender, that might be their mother or father. For the victim, could bring someone like a friend.
0: Well, let's hear how that has worked in New Zealand from an academic who was specialised in family group conferencing, which was the forerunner of restorative schemes in this country.
3: I'm... Um. Alison Morris, I, for the last uh, seven years or so, was based at the Institute of Criminology at Victoria University in Wellington and involved in carrying out research on family group conferencing and restorative justice. It was developed first in New Zealand in 1989, partly as a result of dissatisfaction with the previous youth justice system, but partly also in response to demands by Maori the indigenous people of New Zealand to make the system more culturally appropriate. In the New Zealand version of restorative justice, family group conferencing, the top 20% of youth offending is dealt with through family group conferencing. The rest of juvenile offending is simply dealt with by the police through warning or through diversion. The main emphasis in restorative justice is trying to restore balance and to put things right. So a lot of the focus is on making amends to the victim rather than punishing the offender. Part of that means that the offender is held accountable for his or her offending in a much more meaningful way. In a sense, it's making offenders responsible, but in a constructive way, by making them put something back in to repair the harm that they've done rather than simply experience the penalty. They young person is obviously there, the uh, family are there, anybody that the family wish to invite is there. The victim is there, the victim may bring support people if they want. The purpose of the conference is really to decide obviously what to do about the offending and within that there are probably two key components. One is to hold the offender responsible for his or her offending in a meaningful way and the other is to make amends to the victim to the extent that that's possible. The conference can be held wherever the parties want it to be held, so it could be in the offender's home or on a marae, a Maori meeting house. It's more commonly in a community hall. After the welcome and introductions, what normally happens is that the police outline the elements of the offence, and the young person is then asked whether they admit or deny the facts is set out. Once there is a basis for an agreed summary of facts, then usually the next thing that happens is that the victim, if the victim's present, is invited to say how they felt about the offence and what the consequences of the offence has been for them. In New Zealand, there is also at this point a break where the family and the young person have some private time together and they discuss what they've heard in terms of how to make amends to the victim or how to show that the young person's accepted responsibility for the offence. The meetings then are reconvened and then they would put their plan to the participants of the meeting. There would then be, again, a, a general discussion leading to some decision and resolution. I think that there is a sort of a, an educative level attached to the conference, both to the process and the outcome. And I think also the fact simply that the young person has been included in the process and has agreed to this outcome means it's more likely that the young person will complete the outcome. And having completed the outcome, then any kind of um, intervention that is rehabilitative or whatever is, I think, likely to have some impact on the young person. What we did was we followed up some young people who had been through a conference for six years. We re-interviewed them after six years. And we were able to kind of distinguish between those that were reconvicted and those that were not reconvicted. There were some very clear restorative justice related factors. If the young person apologised to the victim and felt sorry for what they had done, then that distinguished those that were not reconvicted from those that were convicted. We also know from our research that victims can feel better as a result of attending a conference, that they can let go some of the hurt that has been caused by the offence.
0: Sir Charles Pollard, why can't you just introduce that then? You go to New Zealand, you think this is a cracking idea, it really seems to answer a lot of questions, why don't you just put it into practice? Well, in effect, we did, and
2: before we really knew too much about New Zealand. When we started developing this, and then we picked up on other results, particularly in Australia, actually, as well as New Zealand, we then piloted it and we did implement it, Because we had a broad picture that this was a very sensible thing to do and everything we touched with this turned to gold in a sense. It was very successful. But in public policy terms, you really do need a proper basis of information on which to form judgments, particularly if you want something to spread throughout the system. And that's why we were very keen to have a really rigorous independent research
0: project to really evaluate exactly what was happening and whether the ways we could do this better. Roderick Hill, then, how did you go about that at the Centre for Criminological Research? Well, we were funded by the
1: Joseph Roundtree Foundation and uh, my colleagues Carolyn Hoyle and Richard Young started the project back in 1998. What they did was that the research basically took two main phases. The first involved going to look at what Thames Valley Police are doing, going to look at these restorative cautions... And based on observations and interviews with participants, a report was created which basically fed back to Thames Valley Police on what the research thought of how it was being implemented. So it was a kind of action research project at that phase.
0: You didn't wait till the end. You kept feeding
1: interim results as you were going. Yeah, we fed interim results to them so that they could improve practice because we recognize that obviously when you implement a model there's teething difficulties and to evaluate restorative justice properly we had to be sure that Thames Valley Police were doing restorative justice and not simply doing something in the name of restorative justice. Thames Valley Police accepted all those recommendations and then the second part of our project was a more formal evaluation where we didn't feed back to them anymore but we observed a greater number of conferences and spoke to participants after they'd gone to a conference, three months later and then a year later, following up with offenders for example, their patterns of offending uh, through Mm self-reported offending and through the official statistics.
0: So, when you finished it, you delivered it to the Home Office, and then what? Does it sit in somebody's tray for a year, two years, drift away? How do you ensure that the ideas don't die and that there is a political impetus behind it? How can you try and achieve that?
1: Well, I mean, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation has been very good at helping us disseminate the results. Obviously, the report that we created is disseminated through the academic community but also through people involved in restorative justice at at practice level and with government we had an advisory group on our project that had members of the home office people from different organizations so through widespread dissemination and getting it to the people on the ground as well and
0: and sir charles you're no longer chief constable you've retired but you're still running with this idea well i am i'm Working very full-time, actually, on restorative (laughs) justice. First of all, working um, with uh,
2: Professor Lawrence Sherman of the University of Pennsylvania, the Gerry Lee Centre there, which is big worldwide research into innovative criminal justice solutions, including
0: restorative justice. And I also work with the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales. And what's the appetite like in the Home Office for this sort of work? I mean, are people very keen to see if this will actually work in practice across the UK? Yes, the short answer is that policymakers,
2: when they get involved with the restorative justice, start to understand they do become very enthusiastic about it. But obviously you can't implement something in a big scale unless you've got pretty hard evidence, mm. and if it's going to be politically acceptable. Mm. And at the moment there's a lot of discussions going on about how this could be implemented on a much bigger scale. I think it could be. But it's all very well to have something which works in a small project, or temporary police, actually, quite a big scheme. But to then replicate that widely takes really quite a big systematic approach. But what the Oxford University and Roundtree study shows us is the key things to be systematic in replicating this much more widely.
0: So I think it's a very important study. But it's also quite difficult to sell politically, isn't it? Because we still seem to have a debate in this country where people want... Well, they want vengeance, perhaps, often, and anything that seems to pay a great deal of attention to the motivation and tries to understand the uh, criminal is a quite difficult thing to sell, isn't it, at a public level? It is difficult to sell. What's
2: interesting about that is over the years we've been developing in terms of Valley Police, I've never had any problem at all in selling it with the local media in Thames Valley, being very supportive. The difficulty is in really how you badge it, in the sense that the name restorative justice doesn't Mm. sound firm enough uh, in the way you're just suggesting. But the key to all this is, in reality, this is stronger and, in quotes, tougher than normal justice. If you're an offender to sit in front of the victims you've affected and to sit there to hear face-to-face what's happened, believe you me, that is being held to account far more significantly than in a court.